Thank you, worship team. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Those are the first five books of the New Testament. Of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ so that we can believe on Him and receive the gift of eternal life and know what He wants in the Christian life and follow His example. Uh, But the book of Acts, Ron, what's that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, book of Acts. What's the book of Acts? The book of Acts talks about the birth and the first few decades of the New Testament church after the death and resurrection of Christ. And as we're in the first couple of chapters of this book, we'll actually look at uh, the rest of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, and a little bit of chapter 8 today. But here we are, Bailey, in the early chapters of this 28-chapter book, and it's pretty obvious that there's one thing that's the theme of the early church, and that's the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Every time they're in a bind, every time they do any kind of public ministry, it's not about Peter, not about Paul. It's about the death of Christ and the resurrection. You know, the cross from day one became the symbol of biblical Christianity. And when you think about it, right, Kay? I mean, uh, believers love the cross, Um, because there the God-man did the work of redemption for us. His death on the cross covered our sin debt to God. And so Christians love the cross. We think about the cross. We sing about the cross. We revel in the cross because that's the love of God revealed in the perfect redemption of the Savior for us. But here's a strange thing. It's also very common for people who are very cross-centered Uh, to be shocked, surprised, offended, when anything even remotely cross-like happens to us. And that's a really weird disconnect. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody. But think about that. The symbol of our faith is the cross. Now what was the cross all about in Jesus' day? You know what the cross was all about? Crucifixion was all about? Crucifixion was the instrument of capital punishment used by the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, specifically designed to be the most horrific, painful, unfair, bloody, sadistic way to torture felons or anybody the Romans thought got in their way. So what's the symbol of our faith, Bobby? It's a cross. Be like today maybe making an electric chair or something like that. It's not a recliner. You know, the symbol of Christianity is not a recliner or a cruise boat, cruise ship. It's the cross. And the cross is the symbol of our faith. And yet, a lot of times, a lot of us, including me, allow, when painful things happen to us, we allow those things to kind of of totally blow our categories, which is strange. I mean, Nathan, we've got our, our faith in Christ. It centers on the cross. We know the horrific aspect of the cross. And yet when something unfair happens to us or something we don't like happens to us, we have an existential crisis and it totally blows our categories. And that's strange that the cross is our symbol, but we're expecting Christianity to be just a kind of a psychological slash religious self-help program to make sure nothing difficult ever comes our way. And it's even stranger when you start reading the Bible carefully and you see that just about everybody in the Bible faces a certain amount of unfair difficulties, quite often very traumatic in their lives. Nobody in the Bible seems to be immune from these things. So why would we think we are? And it gets stranger when you look at prime examples like the one we're going to look at today. In our passage today, we're going to look at Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. A martyr is somebody who dies for a cause. And Stephen was the first Christian martyr. And we're going to see that uh, in the way he faced life and death, the essence of true biblical discipleship involves living on earth and even dying on earth with a heavenly perspective. So we're going to look at uh, the story of Stephen today. 
But first, let's pray for teachability and for those who protect and serve us, okay? Father, we thank you for this beautiful first Sunday in June. We thank you for all the kids who are excited about Super Summer and those who are helping. Thank you especially for Krista's organizational skills to make this happen again. I pray you'd be glorified, not just today back there, but throughout the whole several months here. We thank you for the freedom we have to openly meet in the name of Jesus Christ on this corner. We know there are dozens and dozens and dozens of churches all over this city and this county and this state and this country and this globe uh, where believers are getting together and the first significant thing we do on the first day of a new week, which we accept as a gift from your hand, is to, to meet to celebrate the resurrected Christ on the day of his resurrection, the first day of the week. So we're very thankful we're able to do this again and we don't take it for granted. Uh, we pray you'd make us teachable, uh, that this would not just be ancient information on a page, but it'd be transforming truth. And your Holy Spirit, who inspired this text, has preserved the text, would illumine the truths of these texts to each one of us. Give us teachable hearts. Help the teacher to have a clear head, pure heart, and concise approach today to a long passage. Uh, we thank you, Father, for those who protect and serve us, whether they're local peace officers or firefighters, men and women, brave servants willing to be first responders to crises. Uh, we pray for those who are in our active military, uh, and we pray especially for those who are believers, that you'd strengthen them spiritually as well as physically in their work and their missions, and also for their families who make great sacrifices as well. Uh, and so again, we thank you for the opportunity to open the word together, to sing together, and to focus on the resurrected Christ together today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, the book of Acts, one of the, lar one of the largest books in the New Testament, and made up of 28 chapters. And as we go through the chapters, we want to kind of have a, a way, a handle, Bailey, to kind of remember what's in each chapter. So we're using as a memory aid the statement, Jesus is alive as head of his bride. And each one of the letters in that statement, Michelle, stands for uh, a key event in each one of the chapters sequentially. So what happens in chapter 1? Chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven, where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John end, the book of Acts starts. Jesus ascends to heaven. E, establishment of the New Testament church. 10 days after the ascension of Christ, the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. Chapter 3, salvation of a lame beggar who'd been lame, uh, begging in front of the temple clay for decades, who suddenly is supernaturally uh, healed and has a testimony to tell to validate what the apostles were saying about the resurrected Christ. What happens in chapter 4? These people got into almost, most, Peter and John got into almost as much trouble as Jack Smith did at False Creek, you know, uh, they get hauled in in front of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, and we see the beginning, the unleashing of persecution against the church in chapter 4. Chapter 5, guess what? We don't just have external persecution. We've got internal corruption. We've got Ananias and Sapphira, uh, uh, some serious sin and corruption in the church, and that has to be dealt with in chapter 5. Chapter 6, I always think of my man David Demerson and Mike Palovic when I read chapter 6. We see the influence, positive influence of, of devoted deacons who deal with the food fight we talked about last week. And now today we're going to see Stephen stoned to death. What's the key symbol of our faith? The cross. What, are, what kind of things do we read about in Scripture? The people dying for the faith. And it's... it's, it's uh, um, part and parcel that Christians have always been misunderstood and tend to be marginalized, and it's only going to get worse in modern American culture. So we have some hard truth today, but it's really important truth. Now, as I said, we're going to just barely get into chapter 8, uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Uh, the the uh, memory aid continues, and we'll next week go to abroad outside of Jerusalem with Philip and go from there. But here's the thing. And Savannah doesn't think I can do this, but we're going to survey a large portion of Scripture. Now, in seminary, there's a technical term for large portions. It's called chunks. We've got a large chunk of the New Testament here. Acts 6, verse 8 through 8, verse 4. Uh, Jack, uh, he'll know the exact numbers. More than 70 verses in all. 
That's a plethora of verses. But the good news is those verses only break down or break down into only how many parts? Three parts. It's all about Stephen. We saw he was one of the first deacons to help with the food fight last week. And we're going to see three things about Stephen that tell us a lot about Nancy Postawaite's discipleship or Kay Massey's discipleship. We're going to see Stephen's ministry, which results in his arrest. So he's kind of controversial. Stephen's message, which presents a biblical and a convicting defense for his faith in Christ. And then we're going to see Stephen's martyrdom. And it wasn't an electric chair or a lethal injection. He was stoned to death. And that kind of sets off intensified persecution against the entire church in and immediately around Jerusalem. So let's look first at Stephen's ministry in verses 8 through 15. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Look at verses 8 through 11 to start with. In chapter 6. And Stephen, one of the seven deacons from the previous passage, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. We've seen signs and wonders were typically apostolic credit cards, calling cards, but Stephen has an, an apostle-like ministry. Uh, God's put a lot of uh, uh, prerogatives for him, and he's doing some dynamic things. But somebody doesn't like everything. Some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, which means former Roman slaves who had been freed come to Jerusalem, uh, archaeologists tell us there were 430 different synagogues at this point in, in Jerusalem. Half were Hellenistic, half were Hebrew, and they broke down. They had the, the bowler church, they had the card player synagogue, they had the golfer synagogue, they broke it down into stuff like that. Cowboy synagogue, all that stuff. Uh, Cyrenians and Alexandrians, those are people from North Africa originally, from, from, uh, and some from Cilicia and Asia, Roman Asia was in Cilicia, were in modern Turkey. So they've all uh, come to Jerusalem, and they don't like what Stephen's doing and saying about Jesus. And they rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This, Stephen was like, uh, what, in baseball, to be really be a megastar, you've got to be able to run, throw, hit, hit with power, and field. Right? Those are the five things that a megastar in baseball can do. I was never a megastar in baseball. I could throw. I could throw. That's it. I couldn't field. I wasn't a very good hitter. Uh, I was you know, susceptible to like, you know, blisters on my fingers. It was not good. But uh, yeah, Stephen had all the marbles, and he's even able to defend his faith to an extent he just shuts them up. Then... Notice, these people who are arguing with, with Stephen and saying Jesus isn't the Messiah and what you're doing in his name isn't legit, we don't like it, stop doing it. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard Stephen say blasphemous words against Moses and against God. That order is a little bit weird, Harold. He's saying bad things about Moses. And he's also saying some bad stuff about God. That seems a little strange right there. Um, it reminds me of the famous saying. Have you guys heard of this? If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Have you ever heard that? That's not the way we say it anymore. These guys were saying, if at first you don't succeed in shutting up Stephen, cheat. The way you cheat is you get people to lie about the person you don't like to get everybody all stirred up. Look at verse 12. And they, Stephen's opponents in that synagogue, Stirred up the people, just generally, and the elders and the scribes, the big shots in Jerusalem. Uh, and they came up to him and dragged him away and kind of a citizen's arrest, brought him before the council. This is the fourth time now since chapter 4, okay, uh, Rachel, that we've had apostles or leaders in the church dragged in front of the Jewish Supreme Court. Think about this, Kay. Whoops, that's already up there. Isn't it? It's interesting. Back in chapter 4, we had Peter and John, after healing the guy at the temple, arrested, brought before the, uh, the council, the Sanhedrin. And what happened? They were scolded and told not to tell anybody about Jesus, and then they were released. And so what did they do after they were released? They kept telling people about the Lord, right? 
And then uh, the next chapter, we have the 12 arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. And remember, they were supernaturally released overnight by an angel. And what did they do after that? They continued telling people about Jesus. And then the next day, they got rearrested. And this time, they were beaten with whips, 39 lashes. But you know what they did? They continued to tell the story about the resurrected Jesus. And now we got Stephen, who's not an apostle, but one of the leading lights in the church. And he's going to be arrested. He's going to be killed. And the church in Jerusalem is going to be driven out of the town. But what are they going to do? They're still going to tell people about what they know about the resurrected Jesus. Uh, So this is an unstoppable force but they have no illusions that everything's going to go smoothly. There's an old saying, the path of true love never runs smoothly, right? Uh, the path of true biblical discipleship never runs smoothly. You're going to have problems. In fact, you probably have more problems uh, than the person who's kind of more of a secret service Christian. Look at verse 13. Uh, so here we are in front of the Sanhedrin with Stephen. They put forward false witnesses who, sa- who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place, the temple structure, and the Mosaic law. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene, you know, the guy we had liquidated a few months ago before this, uh, Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council, the 70 big shots that ran Judaism, saw his face like the face of an angel. Now what does that mean? I don't know. I'm not sure what that means. I do know that because when Moses comes down off the mountain, his face glowed so much so they had to put a veil on and hurt people to look at him because his face glowed for so long. Uh, In the Jewish mind, a glowing face, a happy countenance uh, implied the presence of God. So uh, this guy apparently is obviously not panicking. It's Stephen. He's not sweating bullets like I would be. Anybody gets mad at me for any reason, including students at Cameron. And technically, I outrank them. I don't outrank anybody here, but it's it's, it's Cameron. You know, Uh, I got a PhD at a college. I'm supposed to be, you know, I'm an adjunct professor, which is like uh, nothing. But uh, yeah, I mean, anytime anybody gets mad, I I sweat bullets. But Stephen looks cool, calm, and collected. And so I think he's right where he needs to be. That's Stephen's ministry. Now let's go to Stephen's message. And golly, we got 53 verses here, Savannah, but the 53 verses only break into two parts, a little part and a big part. The little part's verse 1, the high priest question. All the rest of it is Stephen's answer. Now, I've been accused of giving really long answers, maybe overly long answers to simple questions. But I'm telling you, it's a biblical thing. I'm just following the example of Stephen, Okay. It's a one-verse question, and he goes on for 52 verses. And it's because he's trying to paint a picture of Jewish history so they can see that his generation are doing exactly what the other generations have done for the most part, reject what God said about the Messiah he was going to send. So look at verse 1. The high priest's question. This is, this is Annas the high priest, the same guy who presided over the condemnation of our Lord Jesus. The high priest said, Are these things so... And I think he means, Derek, all these specific charges against you. Now, Stephen's not going to be drawn into defending himself against these individual charges, all of which are absurd and based on lies, right? We know that. What he's going to do is paint a big picture. And this is so important because as you read 52 verses like this, you might miss the forest for the trees. We don't want to do that. Uh, let's, let's, before we look at Stephen's answer and read through it briefly, I want you to notice where he ends up. And he knows exactly where he's going, uh, uh, Eric, as he starts this long answer. So look at verse 51. If you have a Bible, look at verse 51 of chapter 7. He's been asked the question, are these things so? Hey, boy, kind of defend yourself against these charges. Stephen's got a lot more important stuff than defending himself against these charges. He gets one shot to tell the the, uh, Supreme Court of Judaism that Jesus is Messiah, And that, in fact, most of the generations of Judaism have missed what God was trying to tell them. Not all the individuals, but many of them. And he's going to answer it at that level. 
you know, at some point as a, as a disciple of Christ, you realize, you know, it's really not about me. Life's not really about me getting my way. Uh, I got faults as a pastor, but I never had an illusion. I want to pastor a small church in a small town so I can get my way on everything. You know, I never thought like that, and, which is a good thing. Look at verse 51. This is where Stephen's going to, and we're going to read the whole of his response with, with uh, the con- concept of where he's going in our heads. His bottom line is telling the 70 members of the Sanhedrin to their face, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised spiritually in your heart. Uh, your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You've been hearing the apostles, seeing all these crazy miracles, and you still reject Jesus as Messiah. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just what your fathers did, just what every generation of our fathers have tended to do. Then he says, which one of the prophets in the Old Testament did your fathers not persecute? (laughs) They were all rejected. Uh, They killed those prophets who'd previously announced the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, who's the Messiah, Jesus, betrayers and murderers you guys have become. He's looking down the barrel of a shotgun, looking at the people who had condemned Jesus and saying, you're doing exactly what uh, our people have tended to do, and you've now rejected the Messiah to his face. So rejecting me is no big deal. Okay, so what's he going to do here? Go back to verse 2. Rather than focus on himself, Stephen is going to survey the big picture, and he says, look, the nation of Israel has an old family tradition. You know what it is? Missing the point majoring on the religious rituals and missing the reality. That's what we tend to do as a people. The nation of Israel has that family tradition that the majority of the nation will disbelieve and disobey God even in the face of spectacular miracles. Can you say the opening up of the Red Sea? And a few weeks later, just a few days later, they're whining about when they go back to Egypt, right? And they don't like the food, (laughs) Now, I can relate to that. I'm a very picky eater. I don't like food either, you know, so I get that. So even in the face of incredible miracles and some of the greatest people of all time, and let's leave the Lord out of this because he's in, obviously in a special category. Moses, David, Abraham, Solomon, that's the history. That's what he's going to talk about. Look at verses 2 and following. He's going to start the beginning with Abraham, who's the father. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel. That's the history of the Jews. And he says in verse 2, let me put all this in a context for you. Hear me, brethren and fathers. He's being very respectful as he starts. The God of glory, not a God of glory, but the God of glory, the only one, appeared to our father Abraham when he was living in Mesopotamia, the area between the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates, before he lived in Haran. Before he went to Haran in Syria, he lived in Ur of the Chaldees in Iraq. That's where God calls him. And God said to Abraham, leave your country, leave Iraq, leave Ur, and your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father Terah died, God had Abraham move to this country in which we're now living, right here in Canaan, right here in Jerusalem. But he gave him no inheritance in it. He didn't allow him to stay in one spot. He lived in a tent. Abraham did never settle down in one place. He was moving around constantly. Uh, Not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, and he's in his older age, as is his wife Sarah, God promised that he would give to Abraham as possession uh, the land and to his descendants. And he was an old guy and had no kids. And he had no land uh, claims either. He's just wandering around Canaan with no kids, and God says, you and your people are going to have this land as an inheritance as long as the earth exists, and you're going to have a son who's going to have a son, and a nation will come out of that, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God spoke to this effect too, that his descendants would first, before they came into the land and controlled it as a nation, would first be aliens in a foreign land. That's Egypt. And they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And yet, whatever nation to which they would be in bondage, God said, I myself will judge. They're going to be responsible for their actions. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. Your people will 
uh, be it the seed of a nation that will serve me here in Canaan, here in Israel. And God gave him the covenant of circumcision, the Old Testament sign of the promises to Abraham. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac in his old age and circumcised him on the eighth day to remember the promises. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the 12 patriarchs. And we get the 12 tribes of Israel and a whole nation out of the 12 tribes of, uh, of Israel, right? Uh, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. Remember that story? Genesis 37 through 50, you've got the 12 sons of Jacob, and they all got along so well, didn't they? I mean, no, they were always arguing, and in fact, they hated Joseph because he was the favorite. And, you know, if you weren't here Wednesday night, like, number one, where were you? Number two, free homemade ice cream and brownies. You missed it. And I made the ceremonial presentation of my high school letter jacket to the Super Summer program. But whenever, whenever I think of Joseph and the cut of many colors his dad gave him, I always think of my letter jacket. I can't wear it anymore, but uh, I always felt special when I had it on. So Joseph had this uh, sign of being dad's favorite, and the other guys who would be the founders of this nation God was going to use to bring Messiah, Jesus, to the world, they didn't like him. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery in Egypt, yet God was with him. What does that mean, among other things? Where's Joseph going, Steve? Egypt, right? God's with him in Egypt? According to the ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures, your God only controlled whatever territory your military controlled. So there's always a lot of pressure on the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Ammonites, the Moabites to defeat other people to give their God or gods more room, okay? But the real God isn't limited to any real estate or any human military domain. Uh, he gets sold into slavery uh, by his brothers, goes to Egypt, pagan place, but God's with him in, uh, in Egypt. That's, that's an important thing you might miss. And God rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him over a period of time to be known to the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And the Pharaoh eventually makes Joseph basically secretary of state, governor over Egypt and over his whole household. Now, a famine came over the land after Joseph had stored up food for years, right, seven years, affected Egypt and Canaan, where uh, Jacob and the 12 sons and their families are living. They got no food and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, because his son had stored it up for seven years, but he'd notice his son doing it, uh, he sent our fathers, the other sons there for the first time. And on the second visit to Egypt to get food, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And then Joseph, in grace, forgives them. They wanted, they wanted to kill him. They saw him in slavery. And he forgives them. And then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him in Egypt. 75 persons in all. Now why is that important? Because as soon as God calls Abraham, he said, you and your people are going to have this land, but first you're going to be in a place of bondage for 400 years. How does that happen? Well, we're in Egypt now. Look what happens. He says, um, and so Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our fathers, meaning the 12 sons of Jacob, they all died there. But they were, their bones were brought back to Shechem because the resurrection takes place where your bones are or whatever is left of your bones. Uh, that's important, verse 16. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, what was the promise? That Abraham's descendants would be in Canaan, not Egypt. Would have freedom, not bondage, right? As the 400-year clock is winding down, the people of Israel, from 75 people to start with, increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another Pharaoh over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph and the way he saved Egypt and the way they brought the Jews in under good uh, uh, relations and all that. And it was he, that is the Pharaoh, which is actually Amenhotep II, historically, if you, if you line it all up. Uh, it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race, the Jewish nation, mistreated our fathers so they would not 
uh, so that it would expose their infants and they would not survive. Remember, as the population of the Jews continued, the Egyptians said, hey, you know, all these illegal aliens are going to outnumber us. We've got to eliminate all Jewish males so they can't baby, so they can't multiply. Uh, and so we're under that situation. And that's during the time that Moses was born. Verse 20, now it was at this time when all the Jewish baby boys are, are being slaughtered because of the Egyptian paranoia, that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. He was nurtured, protected by his family for three months. And then when it was too late, to, he got too big and too noisy probably, because Moses had a good set of lungs when he was hungry or had a dirty diaper. We must know that. Uh, after he'd been set outside in the little basket, you know the story, in the, in the Nile, Pharaoh's daughter saw him, fell in love with him, took him away, nurtured him as her own son. And the bottom line is, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. The prince of Egypt, ever heard of the prince of Egypt? Yeah, this is Moses, raised to be the next Pharaoh. He was a man of power and words and deeds. What do you know about Moses and the way the Exodus generation of Jews related to him? Did they always... Was every day like Pastor Appreciation Day for Moses? I don't think he, they didn't even have an annual Pastor Appreciation Day for Moses. Every day was Moses is target day, you know, kind of thing. But you're seeing all the stuff God's doing to get Moses into place, but they still reject him, uh, by and large. Many individual exceptions. Uh, now look at verse 23. But when he was approaching the age of 40, and he's on a glide path to become the Pharaoh of Egypt, he decides to side with his people. Uh, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, not just to visit and say hi, but to align himself with them, the sons of Israel. And when he was walking by and saw an Egyptian beating the tar out of a Jewish guy for not working hard enough as a slave, when he saw one of them, one of the Jewish men, being treated unjustly, Moses defended him, took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Apparently one punch, he not only knocked the guy out, he kills him. Moses is tough. Moses is probably a big bruiser like, uh, like Derek, or had that kind of impact. And, and he, watch this. And Moses supposed, he thought it was justifiable homicide, because apparently this Egyptian is going to kill the Jewish guy unfairly. So he defends him, knocks him out, kills him. And Moses supposed that his brethren, the Jewish people under bondage there in Egypt, would understand that the God was granting them deliverance through him. But they didn't get it. And so you know what? Talking about ingrates. On the following day, Moses appeared to them as they were fighting together. There were two Jewish guys arguing about something, a fist fight. They're not going to kill each other, but they're arguing about something. Uh, probably about the NBA finals, you know, something like that. Uh, they had satellite, but they had like, you know, uh, just... Uh, a landline for internet, so it was real slow. Uh, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Try to get along. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his brother pushed Moses away and said, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Now that was a gutsy thing to say. This is the guy who's the Pharaoh to be, and you're pushing him away and saying, leave us alone. Plus, Moses is wanting to help get the Jews out of bondage, okay? As he indicated the day before. So who made you a big shot? Well, the Pharaoh and God. Other than that, nobody. You, know? um, you do not mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday. See, Moses thought nobody knew about it. He had buried the body. <laughs> he didn't think anybody knew about it. Somebody almost always knows about it, just so you'll know. Especially in Duncan. Why would, you, why would anybody go to a place like Johnny's and gossip and slander somebody and think nobody's going to know? I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, there are no secrets in Duncan. Very, very few. Um, I mean, I have a few, but you, that's fine. Um, at this remark, Moses, who thought nobody knew, and in fact, all the slave community knows that Moses killed an Egyptian the day before. <laughs> I guess they got on Twitter. You know, that's how it worked. Uh, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian. Now, how old was he when this all happens? Forty. So 40 years as the prince of Egypt, 40 years as a shepherd in Midian. Seemingly nothing's happening. 
And then the last 40 years of his life is when he actually leads Israel out of bondage. But he says, uh, after this remark, Moses said, "Uh uh-oh, if the average guy knows I killed the Egyptian yesterday, I'm going to have to face a murder rap. And when they get the inkling I was killing him because I'm Jewish and I'm trying to incite freedom for the bondage of the uh, Jewish people, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. So he has to get out of there with a capital murder warrant over his head. And he became the father. So anyway, verse 29. uh, At this remark, Moses fled out of Egypt, became an alien in the land of Midian, south of Israel, uh, Canaan, where he became the father of two sons. So he settles in, gets married, has two kids, and spends 40 years doing that. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai uh, in the flame of the burning thorn bush. There's a lot we can say about that angel who wasn't uh, your average angel, but I'm just going to try to be very succinct. Savannah's praying I'll be succinct, right? Keep praying, sister. Uh, And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord from this bush that's burning but not being consumed. Clearly a supernatural thing you can't reproduce in a laboratory. And the voice of God says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 400 plus years later, I get it. I made a promise. You're the God going to lead them out and take them to the land, ultimately. I'm the God of of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac. Moses shook with fear. Would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off your hat, boy. You're in a special place. Only in that day, take off your sandals. This holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people, my people, his people in Egypt. You don't have to be in Jerusalem inside the temple precincts to be his people. Uh, And I've heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them, and now I'm going to send you to Egypt, and you're going to be my quarterback get my people out of, the land, out of Egypt into the land. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you to be a ruler and a judge? From day one, the Jews weren't happy about Moses' leadership. Uh, that's the very one God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush. This man led them out. And he's summarizing like four books of the Bible in three verses here, which is pretty good. Performing wonders and signs, like the opening of the Red Sea and lots of other things, in the land of Egypt, um, in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, only much better. That's Deuteronomy 18. You know what, Colin? One of the most important things Moses ever said was, it's not about me. God's going to raise up a prophet like me, only greater, and that prophet's the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah. So Moses is very much aware God's made promises about a Messiah. He affirmed that, and uh, that was always the issue. It was about Messiah, not Moses in his mind. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness, verse 38, together with the angel who was speaking. He was commissioned directly by God. You can't you might, you might say, well, you're, you went to Dallas Seminary and Trinity Seminaries. I don't like those. They're conservative. You were ordained by uh, Southwest Bible Church in Houston. I don't like that one. What's that? You know, you can question my background. You can't question Moses' background, can you? I mean, God himself said, you're the guy. And yet, they don't like him very much. Uh, look at verse 39. This is so important. Bottom line, our fathers, the Exodus generation that he takes out of Egyptian bondage, were unwilling to be obedient to him. But they repudiated him, and in their hearts, almost immediately after he gets them through the Red Sea, they want to go back to Egypt and surrender. We had it so much better as slaves, remember? The grass is, I guess the dirt is always drier on the Egyptian side of the fence. I just made that up. That was pretty good. I like that. Somebody write that down. Saying to Aaron, uh, yeah, Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments, they said, hey, we need something visible to worship. Make us an idol like we had in the good old days in Egypt. Make for us gods who will go before us we can see. Uh, for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. He's been gone for 40 days getting the law, right? And at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. That's a little dig. They built this thing and then bowed down to it. Now we don't, uh, modern 21st century Americans don't bow down to idols like that, but we're all about uh, 
financial prosperity and clout and power and sexuality and all that kind of stuff that we kind of uh, really put as the center of our uh, desiring and whatever is the most important thing in the core of your soul, that's your God as you're living from that point of view. So don't think that there we're that, that much different than they are. Um, but God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. So much we could say about that. But just suffice it to say he quotes from Amos talking about some of the gods that uh, they worshipped even during this period when they're under Moses. Molech and uh, Ramtha are the two mentioned here. Molech was uh, a god invented by the Ammonites associated with the planet Venus. Whenever the Venus, the morning star would come up, they would worship Molech. Uh, and he was into all kinds of horrible things like child sacrifice and things like that. That's how he made points with Molech. Uh, this other god is less known but mentioned in passing in the Pentateuch. Uh, Ramtha was associated with Saturn. You can actually see Saturn with the naked eye. You can't see the rings, but those were two early uh, pagan deities that the Exodus generation and all subsequent gener- generations of the Jews in the Old Testament tended to be more interested in than Yahweh, the, the God who actually is real. Our fathers not only had Moses, they had a physical manifestation, tabernacle, temple, where God made his reality visible, right? Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. They built it at the end of the book of, of Exodus, and the glory of God goes into it at the end of that book. Just as he spoke to Moses, uh, and directed him to make it exactly according to this pattern that God gave him. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it, the tabernacle, with Joshua. After Moses dies, Joshua actually takes him into the promised land. After dispossessing the nations which God drove out, the Canaanites, before our fathers, until, let's jump forward about 400, mi- 400 miles, 400 uh, years, and let's go from Joshua to David. But these people know all the history. We're just saying, look, all the major stuff God did, typically the Jews misunderstood or rejected. And now, what, what's he saying to the Sanhedrin? You're not doing anything differently than our people have always tended to do, right? David, the second king of the United Tribes of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might build a permanent structure, not a tent tabernacle, but a permanent building temple but it wasn't David's right to do that. It was his son Solomon who built a house for God. However, the real God doesn't need a building. It's for our benefit that we have a building, right? He doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? I don't need it, right? It's, I'm allowing that so you, for you, your benefit. Uh, but you're supposed to worship me, not the ritual. Uh, was it not my hands which made these things? You, you remember when Solomon is dedicating the temple, he says something like, uh, this is a paraphrase, he goes, uh, uh, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee, much less this house that we have built. You know, he understood that. That was kind of for our benefit, not for God's. We weren't giving him, God's never homeless. Don't worry about that. Okay? Now, verse 51, 52, here's his bottom line. He's had the selective summary of Old Testament history that we're not necessarily all that familiar with, but they would have been. And he's just highlighting, no matter what kind of miracles God does or what kind of amazing people God sends, the majority of the nation Israel would disobey or disbelieve or totally reject it. And now he looks at, their, looks at them right between the eyes. And again, he's looking down the barrel of a shotgun when he says this. These people have the power of life and death over him. And he knows that, but he says, in effect, Peter and John told you about Jesus, you arrested them. The apostles did it, you arrested them. Then you rearrested them. Now you've got me, and you want to kill me. And he said, you guys are doing just like our nation has always done. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit's testimony about the Messiah. You're doing just like our fathers did. Uh, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? I mean, wow, what an indictment. Uh, They killed those prophets that God had sent as his mouthpiece who had, in the Old Testament, announced the coming of what? The Messiah. If this 
pulpit is where Christ died for our sins and rose again. In the Old Testament, they were given promises that God would provide a Savior. They get more and more specific until Jesus comes. We're just on the uh, other side of the Christ event here in the book of Acts. Here in 2015, we're a little further down the timeline. But we look back in faith, not at a promised Savior, but a provided Savior, and we hold on to promises about the future He's given us too. But He's saying, you men have blown it just like every generation of our people have done. Which one of the prophets did, did our people not persecute? They killed those who had announced the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, and now you've murdered Him. You betrayed Him and hurt, turned Him over to Pontius Pilate for crucifixion. Uh, you who received the law as ordained by angels, you did not keep it. You know, I'm reminded of uh, John 3.18. Now, John 3.16 is probably the most famous verse in the English Bible for most Americans. If they know a Bible verse, they probably, maybe, might know John 3.16. For God the Father loved the world full of sinful people like me so much, He gave His only begotten, King James 16.11 English, not a great translation, John wrote monogenes, which means unique, only one of its kind, okay? No man has seen God at any time, but the monogenes son has made him visible. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, came to earth, Monica, took on humanity without ceasing to be deity. Jesus is the God-man Savior. God the Father loved the world so much he sent his son, the God-man Savior, that in the Greek text doesn't say whosoever believeth, it says so that all of the ones who believe in him. Believing in Christ isn't just historical, yeah, I believe there was a guy named Jesus who did some preaching 2,000 years ago. It's active, receptive trust. I've broken the rules, I can't fix it, he's paid the debt for me on the cross, and I want him to be my savior on that basis. That's what Saving faith is active, receptive trust, full consent of the will, not just mental assent. God the Father loved the world, gave His Son. What did He do on the, on, what did the Son do for us, Tabor? Lived a perfect life, died and paid our sin debt, which means everything Ron Miller has ever done or ever will do, Jesus died for. If this pulpit is Jesus, where Jesus dies on the cross, Ron was born 50-plus years ago. At a very young age, you were very close to your mother at the time. He was. They've heard that before. They usually laugh at the jokes, but not that one. Let me ask you, Jesus dies on the cross in 33 AD. You're born in 1959. You were so young. How do you remember that? That's amazing, man. Uh, born in 1959. How many of Ron Miller's sins were future in time when Jesus died on the cross? All of them. Even the ones he hasn't done until next week. How many of Ron Miller's sins were paid for by Christ on the cross? All of them. How many are forgiven when Ron initially believed in Christ? All the ones Jesus died for. This isn't probation. This is salvation. Okay? But the Bible's talking about salvation, not probation. Now, look at 3.18. I'm thinking of 3.18 when he says, uh, you've rejected the Messiah and what the apostles and what I've been trying to tell you about the Messiah I mean, you killed him just, you know, 500 yards from here, but he was resurrected, and you can't squash that. And he says, you've become his murderers. Um, you've totally disbelieved and repudiated him. You know, there's ultimately two categories of, of Christians. People talk about interracial marriage. There's only one race, human race. There's only one race. And if some of you don't start moving, you might finish in last place, Riley, so start moving on that human race, Okay. <laughs> There's only one race, okay? Different phenotypes, no different genotypes. Talking about genotypes, we could talk about XX and XY. Nobody talks about XX and XY anymore. Nothing changes. No matter what kind of stuff they stick on your bodies, it doesn't change. It's crazy. But, um, yeah, uh, there's only two types of people. Those who have or haven't responded in faith to Christ. John 3.18, which kind of lives in the shadow of 3.16, right? The one who believes in him. Who's him, Jane? Jesus, right? The one John 3.16 talks about. Uh, the one who believes in him is not judged. We don't even come under condemnation because our sin debt's been paid. But the one who does not believe, would you say that these people that Stephen calls stiff-necked and uncircumcised are unbelievers? In fact, they're 
anti-believers. They totally reject the whole thing. Stands judged already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Uh, keep reading. Uh, look at verse 54. We go from uh, Stephen's ministry and message to his martyrdom. And, you know, we're going to go over this very quickly, but this guy is one of the biggest heroes of the Christian faith, the first Christian martyr. You're going to meet him in heaven someday. And, uh, you know, you're going to meet some of these people with congressional medals of honor. This guy gets the divine medal of honor to an unbelievable extent. And I'll show you what I mean. Verse 54, uh, when they heard this, who's they? These judges who were looking at Stephen defend the faith, the Sanhedrin. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth. David, rather than godly contrition, we've got sinful anger. How dare you convict us of anything? We run Judaism, man. We can have you killed by the word, and you're about to, and, and just watch if you don't believe it. That's basically what they're saying. Verse 55. But being full of the Spirit, Stephen gazes intently upward, and he's given a unique theocratic vision, and he saw the glory of God and the Father, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Standing. Now, if I had more time, I'd go to Hebrews 1 and tell you how important it is that after the ascension took place, Jesus sat down to the right hand of the Father. You know why he sat down? Because he had finished the work of redemption. In, uh, in the biblical context, you rest after you finish your task. God rested after creation, not because he was tired, Tabor, but because he's finished. Jesus sits not because he's tired, but because he'd finished the work of redemption. But Jesus gives Stephen a standing ovation. How about that, Patty? Wouldn't that be awesome? I don't think I've ever gotten a standing ovation uh, anywhere. Um, and I'm not asking for one. I do remember, Julie, I don't know if you remember this, but one, many years ago, I must have done a really good message, and at the end you spontaneously tried to start a, a applause because you liked it so much. I think I probably stepped on David's toes a lot that morning. <laughs> and everybody looked at you, including me, like, what's she doing? You know? um, that's the closest I've ever gotten. This is the Lord Jesus standing up and, in effect, applauding. And that's the only thing that counts. Is that awesome? Uh, and he said, Stephen, behold, and he's not bragging. This is just, he's overwhelmed and has to uh, affirm this thing. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Son of Man is a title for the Messiah in the Old Testament. They know exactly what he means. He's claiming to see Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. And that makes him, if possible, makes the Sanhedrin even matter, Joe. If it's possible for them to get any matter, now they're even matter that he's claiming to see Jesus up there, which it actually was. So they cried out with a loud voice covered their ears. This is blasphemy. Jesus, this horrible guy that we had to kill is with God the Father. He's kind of uh, the, the son of man that Daniel talks about. And rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they're too religious to kill him inside the city walls. They've got to get him out of the walls, right? Because you get spiritual cooties if you kill people inside the walls. Then they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why they were uh, laying aside their robes? They want to free up their pigeon arm. You, you know what? You remember in the, about 1900, you see all these pictures of Harry Varden, all these early golfers playing golf. Have you seen it? And they're all wearing suits, you know, which kind of restricts your backswing. You know, they could only hit their driver about 120 yards because that's as far as they could throw and hit the ball. Uh, you don't see a lot of people wearing suits uh, on major league pitching mounds, do you? They have very you know, loose-fitting uh, things to wear. They just want to be able to throw as hard as they can. And they need somebody, watch this, all these religious people are so offended at the evil of Stephen, they've got to take their coats off so they can throw rocks and kill him faster and harder. But they don't trust one another with their coats, so they have to get Saul to watch the, the religious people's cloaks so nobody steals their stuff. You know? So that shows you what's going on here. Uh, yeah, and they, they put their cloaks under the direction of Saul. So he's a cheerleader watching the stuff. Saul's going to become pretty important in this book. We, you know him better as Paul. He writes 13 New Testament books later. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then falling on his knees, Stephen, he cried out with a loud voice and said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This guy's Christ-like to the end. Sounds like what Jesus said. Uh, Father, uh, don't hold this specific sin, killing the Creator, uh, against them. And here Stephen's saying the same thing. I look at verse uh, 1. Saul was in hearty agreement. He didn't throw any rocks, but he was all for it. He's just trying to facilitate. Is all for it, putting him to death. And on that very day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. This energizes all the enemies, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea. The state around the city of Jerusalem was called Judea. Just north of that, there was an area called Samaria, except the apostles. They go deep underground, but the church goes deep underground, and most of the visible believers leave town for their own safety. And then some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentations over him, but Saul... The guy who watched the coach during the stoning began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered continued preaching the word. I'm going to stop there. Uh, 46 minutes, not too bad for me. Okay, Let me end this way. Uh, the symbol of our faith isn't a recliner. It's not a cruise ship. It's not a hammock. <laughs> it's a cross right? And yet often we're surprised when cross-like things happen to us. Peter says, don't be surprised when bad stuff happens to you. It happens to everybody. And a lot of times the more you identify with Christ, the more it's going to happen to you. But how did the 12 react when they get arrested and flogged? They rejoiced. They had the honor to suffer insult in the name of Christ. They had a whole different conception. Stephen had a whole different conception of life and death than most of us have uh, because he understood Christianity wasn't just a self-help program, a feel-good way to prosperity, health, and wealth on earth. In fact, it's ultimate truth about ultimate eternal reality centered on God in Christ, and it transcends anything and everything that happens now. Now watch this. True biblical discipleship involves living on earth and being productive with a heavenly perspective. Jesus says, take up your cross daily and keep on following me. The now is real and it's important. We're not saying minimize the now. Fatherhood, marriage, motherhood, patriotism, local church involvement, mission trips, fall, Falls Creek trips, all kinds of stuff, school, sports, it's all important. It's all real. The now is real, and it's really important, but it's not ultimate, and it's only temporary. That's real and true, whether you believe it or not. Once you get that deep in your soul, you've got the, the basis for really living a persevering discipleship life as a believer. Now, that's the call of God to believers. He doesn't call unbelievers to be disciples of Jesus. He calls unbelievers to come to Jesus in faith. Then he calls believers to follow after him. Uh, in here, you know, when the Romans would condemn somebody to crucifixion and they only did that for people they thought were rebels in their sights, terrorists, before they'd actually crucify somebody, what would they make the condemned person do? Carry their cross from the point of being indicted and convicted to the place of execution. Why did they do that? They wanted to force the rebel to publicly identify and submit to the authority the Roman authority, they had rebelled against, right? When Jesus says David as a believer is supposed to take up his cross, he's not saying be crucified for your sins. He's saying publicly identify with my authority that before you were a believer you would have rebelled against. That's what true discipleship's all about. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, forgive us for kind of sanitizing the cross and watering down the essence of discipleship and making it think it's a feel-good, all-about-me, I get everything I want, expect, in a time frame I can understand like in five minutes. And then when something doesn't happen, and it can be something horrible like cancer, or it can be something like uh, showing up late for uh, a meeting or miss, having a flat tire, we go into existential theological crises. Forgive us for having such a distorted, shrunken conception of what this thing's all about. Uh, I pray for all of us who are believers that we'd re-embrace having a heavenly, eternal perspective as we live life now and embrace 
uh, baseball and sports and, and uh, our school and our family and all this wonderful stuff with a spiritual, eternal perspective. And for anyone here, Father, this morning who's not from the depth of their heart said, Lord Jesus, I, I don't just break your rules, I break my own uh, rules when I'm at my worst and I can't fix it and I'm guilty of being less than I could be. But you love me, you died for me and paid my sin debt for me and rose again. I accept you from the depth of my heart as my Savior. I believe you did that for me and I receive you. Um, open hearts to respond as we should appropriately to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.